Hey everybody, welcome back to The Smattering, where we ask the important questions about... Jeff, do we ask the important questions or the hard questions? Like, I say something different every time. I think they're both important and hard questions. There you go. I think you're covered. Sweet, sweet. So we got a dual tagline. Love it. All right. We well, ask I'm questions. Hall. <laughs> we Jeff? Ask different types of questions. There you go. There you go. We're leaving this in. We're not, we're not taking this out. Absolutely leaving this in. Yes. That's the voice of the people. His name is Jeff Santoro. Jeff, how are you? I am great. Um, looking forward to, we're doing a mailbag today. We got some, we kind of cleared out like some old, old questions in the queue. We went, we went digging through our Twitter histories to find some, but there's some good ones here. I'm looking, looking forward to this. Me too. Me too. How do people get those questions to us and other things? Best way is probably Twitter at smattering show is the account. Um, you can also email them to us. The smattering show at gmail.com is the email address. Um, that's the best way to get us questions. But while, while I'm talking about reaching out to us, I do want to, I have a plea for our loyal listeners here. Um, and I tweeted this the other day. So we've been doing this for about seven months. This will be our 37th episode, I believe. Sounds our, right. our listening count has gone up pretty steadily since we started. We're seeing some nice you know, growth of the audience. And yet on the two most popular podcast apps, Apple Podcasts and Spotify, we have a combined total of about 33 ratings. So I would really uh, appreciate it if everyone listening, you know, you can do this while you're listening, just quickly go to the show page on whatever app you're listening on. Not if you're driving. Not if you're driving. It can wait, it can wait till you get where That's you're right. going. But if you're just listening, hanging out, uh, you know, give us a rating, preferably five stars, but give us an honest rating. And if you want to go above and beyond and be a great human being, um, give us a, a review if that's an option on your podcast app too. Um, you know, we joke a lot about being able to monetize the uh, podcast and things like that. And we want to be able to do that from the standpoint of it, it will allow us to do more things and make the show better. But right. honestly, we're we're mostly interested in just getting more people to find the show because we do care about helping investors answer the questions, whatever type they are, as we discussed. Um, and Jeff, I'm just here for the money. All right. I'm here to help people, Jason, you can be here for the money and that'll be how people yeah. distinguish the two of us. Yeah, um, there's but rea so the, reality is, <laughs> the reality is the, the better, the more reviews we have, the more the algorithms feed the show to new people. So, yep. um, yep. Like if you want to like, so this is our NPR moment, right? This is our quarterly, as close as you're going to get to like, like, don't you hate that? Like you're listening to morning edition and you get five minutes of morning edition and 55 minutes of, of asking for money. And I get it. So like, this is the only time you, yeah. we're not going to take 95% of your show, dear listeners. But like, I think a lot of you that we interact with on Twitter, like you feel like there's like kind of a partnership here and we get so much from those of you that we interact with because it helps us do a better job. But seriously, the best way you can partner with us to help this podcast continue and to get better is just give us a review and give us a rating and give us a review because that does, that's, that's a signal to the podcast um, apps that it's a good product and they're going to move it up higher and it's more likely that people are going to find it. So yeah, thank you. Yeah. Appreciate that. 
And then um, if anyone has uh, checked out and enjoyed the YouTube channel and the content there, a subscription there wouldn't help. It wouldn't hurt us either. So that that's also appreciated. Um, all right. I think we can dive in here, uh, Jason. We got uh, a couple questions here that we, like I said, we dug through our Twitter histories. So I, I have a, a good answer, I think, for the first one, only because it's something that someone taught me recently. Um, but I want to hear your thoughts on it too. So um, I don't. I couldn't find the actual tweet. We just sort of had this on our notes. But the question is basically in reference to um, fulgent genetics. Uh, the question was, how do you think about valuation and stocks? Which is a really big question. But it was asked about that stock particularly. So um, I think this is a really important one. I'll set the stage, and then I want to hear your thoughts on it. Is the reason reason fulgent is a really good example of this? Is like if you just use their gap earnings. For last year and the year before, you're going to get a number that might make this stock look hyper cheap because Fulgent spent, I don't know, like a million bucks to develop a rapid uh, COVID PCR test and generated billions of dollars in very, very high margin revenue off of it. And it was this massive cash cow and nobody gets COVID tests anymore, right? So there's what the company did, and then there's what it's going to do in terms of its valuation. Go. Yeah, and that's exactly what someone um, – I was talking with Brian Orelli, who's a, a colleague of ours at The Motley Fool, and he's he's a, a guru in the world of um, you know pharmaceutical Biotech. and bio, biotech. He's a biologist stock. by training. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. And he said something to me that's obvious when you think about it, but it never really occurred to me. This was over the summer we were talking about it. And he said, with companies like Fulgent or even Moderna, which have like this out, like one event that sort of throws all of the numbers out of whack. Like with Moderna, it was the fact that they only have one product and it's, and it's COVID vaccines, you know, right now anyway. Right. Um, basically, like you can look at the price to sales ratio, right? And just that's market cap divided by trailing 12-month rate uh, revenue. And that's going to, but that's going to include all of that in the case of Fulgent, all of that genetic, I'm, I'm sorry, COVID testing revenue. So his point was what he likes to do is kind of pull that out and now just look at the trailing 12 month revenue for just their core business, which is Fulgent's next generation, uh, next generation sequencing genetic tests and divide that, uh, but divide the market cap by that number and see what you get as a price to sales ratio. And that might be a, a more accurate sort of if you want to use that as your valuation metric, that might be a more accurate way to do it considering that's going to be the bulk of the revenue moving forward. So I think you can apply that to businesses where some event has caused the numbers to get wacky or if you think it's going to be very different moving forward. Um, so that that's the first thing that popped into my mind when I read that and, and I think you and I were on the same page there. I think you can take that and like the extreme example is is – um, a, a Moderna or a, a Fulgent, where they had a limit, an, an event that was going to provide a massive amount of result for a very limited period of time before right. tailing off relatively quickly. But I think it's also a really useful thing when you're looking at companies that operate in really cyclical industries. Um, I did a video with Travis Hoyam, our, our colleague, that he's going to put over on his YouTube channel, Rive Project. Um, looking at DR Horton, right? And so DR Horton's the biggest home builder in the US. And like if you look at its trailing, its price to earnings ratio based on its trailing results, it looks really cheap, like single digits cheap. But you know what's gonna happen for the rest of the year? Their their home orders in their fiscal first quarter fell 
because they had a bunch of people that were that 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 no longer like interest rates. You can't get a house with a three percent thirty year mortgage anymore, right? So there's a lot of people that got priced out, and you know when you when you are buying something with your expectations based on what it's going to be looking forward, and you're using metrics based on what it did in the past, you damn sure need to make sure that those metrics for what it did in the past are realistic for what it can actually do going forward. And I think that's the big lesson for me. Yeah, exactly. And it, it's sort of just the last thing I'll say on it before we go to the next question, it goes back to that, the, the conversation we had with, well, a little bit with Jim Gillies several episodes ago, but basically, you know, valuation is more art than science in a lot of ways. And if it were as simple as one ratio or one number or one calculation, then everyone would be rich because you'd, yeah, right. you'd be able right. to quickly figure out if something's overvalued or undervalued. Um, so yeah, that's a good question. And I think there's a couple ways to think about it. Um, all right. The next one we got here was from Austin on Twitter. And Austin says, uh, the renewable energy yield co model was successful this past decade. Was the success of this business model attributable to a decade of historically low interest rates? In what way will persistently high interest rates affect the business models? And then, oh, the business models of Brookfield, uh, what's CUWE? Brookfield Renewable, Clearway Energy, NextEra Energy Partners, okay. Atlantica Yield. I could name off a few more. So basically asking, how is cost of capital going to affect these businesses? Yeah. So this is right in your wheelhouse, Jason. Uh, I have one thing to add later, but go ahead. Yeah, so th three things. Number one, the the tailwinds for renewables are very real, right? Not just from the need to reduce carbon output and and affect uh, climate change, but the number of people in the world that like they have a bare minimum expectation of of of, of being able to have reliable electricity electricity is growing. But also think about what's happened to Germany as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, energy security is a real thing, right? And renewables are a way to produce power domestically and get that security. So you have all of those things that are really, really important. And I think the yield co model is really interesting. These independent uh, power producers, because it's like midstream companies in the oil and gas industry where you can deploy an asset, you can sell the power that it generates for decades and if you can get a decent cost of capital interest in the cost to build the facility versus what you can sell that power for over the long term, you can be right in the sweet spot of making pretty good, reliable money and investors can benefit from the dividend and their ability to grow the dividend as they deploy more of these assets over time. I will challenge, though, Austin's um, um, statement that it was a successful model over the past decade because realistically... There were a few winners that were outliers. Brookfield Renewable, one of those. Um, Next Era Energy, um, that was a, a winner. But there's been a lot of businesses that honestly kind of struggled and didn't work really well. Um, there was a company called 8.3 Energy Partners that was the joint venture between um, uh, First Solar and SunPower that was kind of an abject failure because you had two manufacturers that competed in some levels that had you know, kind of diametrically opposed interests at times and like they competed at times and it didn't work when you've got competitors trying to run a joint venture, right? So that one failed. That was not a great investment. I shouldn't say it was, it, fa it failed as an investment and, and a lot of people lost money. I lost money on that. There was another one that was independent um, that the, the, I loved the, the founder of the business. I loved his, his history, 
they ended up selling to a Canadian um, um, to, to a Canadian pension fund. They sold the business um, that was basically buying the cash flows just because it was so difficult to run a publicly traded business doing it, right? So there's outliers that have been successful. I think that's important to note. Um, thinking about high interest rates, so what I do is I think about like Brookfield Renewable is kind of the bellwether because the Brookfield entities are really good at capital allocating and they've done this. They have a long history of doing this in different interest rate regimes in different inflationary um, environments. And they moved heavily into solar and wind about six years ago, um, which was a big signal to me was that was that there was money to be made. Right. So as we've seen kind of some concentration with just a few companies that are doing this at the publicly traded level, um, I, I think, Everything's been reset um, in terms of the valuations of those projects because of cost of capital. And I don't think it's really necessarily going to affect their, the returns that they can get going forward. I think their return profiles are going to be basically the same. Yeah, I don't know much about this space, so I can't really speak to the question directly. But because it asks about interest rates, this is something that I've been thinking a lot about. And I actually want your thoughts on it, Jason. So there's a lot of conventional wisdom in investing that goes back, you know, hundreds of years, right? You can read, um, you know, the intelligent investor, and and you can sort of see where smart, what smart people thought about markets, you know, in the early 1900s or late 1800s or whatever. But there's a lot of conventional wisdom out there that really only goes back maybe to the early 2000s or late 90s, right? And there's even more sort of conventional wisdom out there on the internet that only encompasses this super low or 0% interest rate environment right. that we've lived in for the past decade plus. We've been, I mean, we've, we've been in a declining interest rate environment essentially since the mid 1980s, right? right? And so that colors all of the recent research. So I really do wonder, and, and this is where I'm very interested in, you know, when, when people talk about this, you know, that I trust on Twitter and things, this is an interesting thing for me is like, how much of what we all sort of assume or think or or you know predict will happen is based on our past knowledge of low or zero percent interest rate environments, yeah. and how much of that will change if we see, you know, even if even if interest rates don't go up any further than right now, they just stay where they are, or they go down a little bit over the next five years. Like that's still a much higher interest rate environment than we had for the past ten years. So. You know, we don't need to go too deep into it, but I, I don't know how much you think about that in terms of like what if what if all we think is wrong <laughs> because we have this recency bias of the last ten years. So I, I'm gonna I'm gonna allude to our our B segment. We're gonna do tell me I'm wrong, and you're gonna talk me off the cliff about something that is directly tied to my thoughts on this and managing my own portfolio. And the reality is, is I think that there are a, a group of entities, a lot of businesses out there entirely unprepared to deal with this change in cost of capital. They have no idea how to do it. They built a business plan, assuming that money would be really cheap for a very long period of time. But then there's an entire cohort of businesses that have been around through all kinds of interest rate regimes, even with this shock of, of higher rates that we've seen over the past year. On a historical basis, Jeff, still interest low. rates are still reasonable. I mean, it, right. unless you're trying to buy a house and houses are 50% more than they were five years ago, 
and interest rates are where they are, like most other stuff, it's, it's, it's fine. And the companies that know how to allocate capital and understand it, they're going to be fine. Investors yeah. just need to be able to think about that cost of capital. And is this cash burning? Okay. I'm not going to say anymore. I'm going to save it for the B segment. Yeah. That's a nice little tease for the, for the B segment though. Nice job. I do what I can. All right. Next question. Um, now this is, these are old numbers cause this tweet is a little bit old, but you, you get the idea. So year to date, and I think this even might go back to the end of 2022. Um, these five stocks are down more than 80%. Upstart, Redfin, Dermtech, uh, Coinbase, and Twilio. And they're all down in the 80s using the numbers from this tweet. How would you rank these in order of greatest potential to erase this deficit in the next three to five years? Um, I'll, go, I'll go first on this one. Um, I, I guess if I had to rank these in some way, I... I might put Upstart first because I feel like if they can get their act together and prove that they can sort of weather a down cycle in the in the credit markets, they they stand to have the highest upside. I think um, I would put Redfin in that same bucket. I think I'd put them one and two in some order. Um, again, they have to sort of make it through a challenging real, real estate market. Um, but again, I. I like that they've been around for a really long time and are slowly taking market share. I also just, you know, talking about the story of the stock as we've talked about in the past, I really like yep. what they're trying to do. Right. Um, I, I don't know much about Dermtech other than my understanding is they're, they're facing a challenge of getting doctors to recommend their, um, getting other people to change their business model. Right. That's outside Derm of their economic interests. Yeah. So Dermtech just does basically does like stick on, peel off uh, skin testing for skin cancer. And that's, that's indirect. Uh, right. You're, uh, you're telling, you're telling dermatologists to stop making that sweet, sweet money that they make doing right. biopsies and to do something that they'll make less money to do. Um, and that's hard. That's really yeah. hard. So I, I think Coinbase is interesting because. I'm of two minds of it. Like I could see yeah. them having a really hard time if crypto never picks up. But on the flip side, if they can prove that they're like the one or the primary or a primary safe place to trade cryptocurrencies, then they could stand to be a big winner, you know, especially as you've seen these other exchanges collapse. Um, and I still think Twilio gets acquired. <laughs> Twilio to me seems like a really cool product that could be part of a bigger company's suite of products. But um yeah. So that none of those are comprehensive deep dives into any of these companies, but that was my sort of way of thinking through their chances of erasing their huge deficits in the next three to five years. But it's tough. I mean, the math on being down 80% is a couple hundred percent increase to break even, if I'm remembering my, my math. Right. It can, it's exactly right. It's not just, it doesn't just go up 80% and it's back where it was. Like right. it has to go up like, you know, fourfold to get to back to where it was. So that's the thing. So I, I think... I think there's a good chance that you're probably right on. Okay, on let's just stop the show there. Uh, thank you, Jason, for saying that I'm right. <laughs> and nice we'll see try. you next time, everybody. Not so fast, young man. <laughs> so, but no, on Upstart, I think I think that I think there is a there is a case because here's the thing, right? If they're if they're IP for the artificial intelligence to have identified all of these other metrics to rate people who the current credit cartel basically says are high risk um, or higher risk, subprime is the term. 
basically if they prove that their their methods better um that's a massive win for humanity and they're going to make a shitload of money because they've already shown at a reasonably small scale that this is can be a really profitable business right i think in their first like fully profitable year they made enough profit to to cover every dollar of loss in the company's existence before that um it just it's a wonderful potential the economics of their business could be wonderful if their product is is worth it worth a toot right so that's that's that i'm gonna put like i'm gonna move coinbase a little bit higher than redfin and dermtech um because i continue to think that there's like true real economic value for blockchain that's going to pan out and it's not going to be about people trading shit coins it's going to be like actual use for blockchain as a technology and the crypto assets are the economic means of 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 exchange, right? Yeah. I, I think that's the key. So I think that's what's going to happen there. And honestly, just not being a fraud for the next three years could yeah. be all they need to, right. to the market. Right. Have you ever thought of a better business case than like they're like at this point? Basically, their business case is just don't screw up. Yeah, I mean, I and, think and, I think their biggest threat now is like does Fidelity and Schwab and E Trade do they start? adding more crypto trading to their platforms. I think there's that's no, where there's they, no appetite for them to do that right now though. They're well, some already of them are starting a, to, I'm seeing well, a I'm, little, but I mean, but they're, I'm just they're saying, I think that's, that's the most, that's their biggest threat right now. But, but that has that, I think that was already their biggest threat. Well, yes and no, because I think prior there was the, the threat of the big established online brokerages, but also all these other exchanges that were out there, you know, some of the ones that have collapsed. So, But what nobody else is building is like an AWS for blockchain, and right. they are. Yep. And that's, yep. that's, a, that's a fundamentally the, the game changer. Again, if blockchain as a tool for all the things that it can do pan out. So, so that's, again, that's why I put it, um, ahead of Redfin, because the biggest risk to Redfin, I don't think it's bankruptcy. There's been I've read stories and I've I've heard from people that are short the stock that I think misunderstand its balance sheet and are talking about defaulting and all this kind of stuff. And the reality is, like if you look at a lot of like their um, their debts that are um, Jeff, what's the um, debt that there's there's an asset that backs it up? What's it called? collateralized debt yes yeah so the debt that they have that's that there's collateral to it it's for things like their house inventory and 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 that kind of stuff right so it kind of balances out right so i'm i'm with there's an asset that offsets that that um liability so i'm not concerned about that that debt but there's some convertible debt that could result in massive dilution it's already priced in today so unless housing market turns quickly the business pivot that they're making pays off quickly and they get to, you know, kind of kicking out some good operating cash flow, which would lift the stock and reduce the impact of the dilution from the conversion. That's, I think, the biggest risk to shareholders now is that dilution. I've already said what I think about Dermtech. There's, it's, it's really hard to get somebody to change their business model. And that's largely what they're trying to do. The upshot is they, they, have a, they say they have a better product and that it, it, it does a better job of identifying cancer um, more, um, more effectively, more accurately than biopsy. And you don't have to cut somebody's body open, right. And then stitch it closed. Like with, even if it's a couple stitches, you know, if somebody has a skin cancer on their face or their head or somewhere that's going to be exposed, you know, it's quality of life that this, so, but it's just, it's tough what they're trying to do. 
I'm going to sell Twilio. I'm going to say it right here. We'll talk more about that on the, on the, on the B side. I'm tired of watching them pivot and burn cash and pivot and burn cash. So, yeah. All right. Good. Um, All right. Next question we have here, stock-based compensation. Why is it a U.S. thing to give away uh, share owners' money? If a company can't pay a salary, maybe they have a bad business idea. What do you think? Coming in hot here. I want to say I I love this one. I'll be honest. Like I didn't culturally, I didn't realize this was U.S. specific. You know, I thought it was just kind of tech company growth company specific was largely how it was, and and I think that's the biggest thing is it's it's become so culturally ingrained um, in in in. But I think part of it too, from a cultural perspective, is if I'm start if you're starting up a business. And you want to find people that have an entrepreneurial mindset mindset that are willing to take on risk. Those are the people that are going to companies and taking stock-based compensation, right? Especially startups, especially small companies. The challenge is that that, those are the companies that don't necessarily have a bunch of cash. So they're preserving it by giving out equity. The problem is that culture now exists in big tech publicly traded companies, right? Yeah. So results in a lot of dilution. I kind of agree, Jeff. I kind of agree with with our our, our listener with with that question. From a cultural perspective, you've heard me talk about it with companies like DocuSign, how it just is an amazing destructor because people will say, well, look at their operating cash flow. I'm like, okay, well, look at the dollars in stock-based compensation and adjust that out. And guess what? They're still burning a ton of cash. And you know what's yeah. going to happen? Five years from now, they're going to be touting about how much stock they're buying back. Yep. So, and, and I don't think there's enough complaint. I don't think there's this major backlash from well-heeled enough investors um, to cause it to change as much as I would love to. Um, no. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Um, Last one we have here, and then we'll we'll hit an ad break and do our B block. Um, if you look back ten years, what percentage of publicly traded companies have grown at the same pace or beat the S and P index? In an effort to restore some optimism, it would be helpful to know over the long term how stocks perform. So I, I love I love this question um, from Chris, one of our regular listeners and, and commenters over on Twitter. And I answered it to Chris, it seems like, because I think it was asked, I think he might have asked this a couple of times. And I, I didn't answer his question directly because like, I don't have that data in front of me about the percentage of publicly traded companies have grown at or beat the S&P 500. But I answered the question that I think Chris was asking, and that's thinking about investing broadly the majority of companies do underperform like by far. And it's a bare percentage of companies that generate the vast majority of the earnings and growth of these, these broad indexes. And what that means as an investor is it's kind of a feature of stock investing that, you know, I don't know the exact numbers, but roughly, roughly speaking, Jeff, 80% of your returns are probably going to be generated by 20% of your investing, right? That to me is the key and the secret behind individual stock investing versus investing in an index. If you invest in the index, you're going to get the index's returns. If you're picking individual stocks, you're doing it 
with the idea that if you can get a couple of outliers to the positive, they're going to do so well. Not only are they going to soak up your losses from the underperformers, but they're going to do so much better that you're going to end up doing better than if you had just bought the index, right? So you have to almost embrace the reality that you're just going to get a few big winners and that's okay. You know, if you've got your, your, you build a baseball lineup, you got, you got 10, nine guys in your lineup, right? You've got two that are going to like, they're going to be the main guys, most of the time, like you get the two guys that like, they're the ones that hit most of the home runs and are on base the most and your portfolio is kind of the same way. And that's okay. Right, Jeff, that's, that's just the way it works. Yeah. And you know, the first part of his question was asking about the specific data about how many companies beat the market. And we don't have that, at least not right now. But the second part was about, you know, restoring some optimism and, and being it helpful, it being helpful to know how stocks perform over the long term. And you know, again, with all of the caveats of who knows what comes in the future, but like historically speaking, over any meaningful amount of time, stocks are the highest returning asset class, right? So, yeah. um, you know, and the, in the past eighty years, almost every rolling ten-year period, the S and P five hundred has made people money, like against right. inflation. However, you want to hedge it, um, yeah, the S and P five hundred every ten-year rolling period has generally been. It's made you money. It's put money in your pocket. But this is why I like, Jeff, I like your strategy for people, particularly for people who are concerned about that. You're always like, always, always be regularly buying. Like you buy like probably 50 out of 52 weeks a year, you buy something. Right. Yeah. I, it's sort of how I have to be at least right now. I do wonder if over time that will change as I become more comfortable and confident and learn more because every once in a while, I do have that moment where I'm like, oh man, I bought this stock originally in April of 2020. If I had just backed up the truck then, you know, I go back and look at that first cost basis and it's up whatever, 200%. Meanwhile, overall, I'm up 5% because I bought at all these different times. I do have those moments, if I'm being honest, where I'm like, maybe I should just make a really informed decision and just put well, a big chunk of money in. But I also know that if I looked at it the other way and did that and made the wrong decision, I'd beat myself up over it. So it's sort of how I have to get get through. And that's how I manage volatility and how I sleep at night and all that. But to each his own. Hey, Jeff, you want to you yeah. go get a coffee? Yeah, let's take a little break. Uh, we've been talking for about a half an hour. I think it's time to, yes. time to take a quick break. So, hey, people, don't, don't, don't go anywhere. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey Jeff, that was a that was a great cup of coffee. It was fantastic. I feel so uh, so uh, rejuvenated now, ready to do the second part of the show. Any coffee coffee companies out there looking looking to sponsor a podcast? Yeah, Howard Schultz, you listening? Howie, little... Howie, baby, come on, <laughs> send us some of those Starbucks. See what I did there? Oh, Jesus, please cut that, that out. Uh, I'm God. not cutting that out. Everyone needs to hear that terrible joke. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, all right. So, Jason, you when we were planning the show this week, you said to me, "I'm gonna I'm gonna blow up so my." Post- I sent you a text. And you we me a text and I believe the text was, "I'm going to blow up my portfolio." Yes, that's the word for word. And I and I think my response was, "Let me talk you off the ledge." And then we decided, with absolutely no like hints or pre-planning, let's let's have this conversation live on the podcast. Because I have this is a couple of days ago now, so I've been dying to hear why you want to blow up your portfolio, what you're thinking, and I'm either going to talk you out of it or not. So let's go. Background for those that haven't listened to some of our earlier podcasts, um, my portfolio is pretty is pretty large. I own 106 different individual stocks. And Jeff, I think the peak was about 123. So I've already trimmed some weeds, but. When I say I'm thinking about blowing up my portfolio, I've, you know, substantially, to use the term from the, the, the industry, kind of risked on, right? I've bought a substantial number of, I bought a substantial number of, of cash burning high growth companies that the business model was go public, take that capital and spend it aggressively to get to scale with the promise of being a high margin, high cash flow business at scale. Obviously, we've seen the tech wash out over the past year. Um, but here, and maybe we're kind of at the bottom to a certain extent when it comes to the market. Maybe we're not. But for me, looking, thinking about this as an owner of businesses, I see a lot of companies that I own that I've bought, and these are really small positions in a lot of them that have become much, much smaller, but they're still, it's in aggregate, it's a meaningful amount of money in businesses that I'm not convinced that the worst, the, the worst for their businesses, separated from the stocks, but for the businesses is still yet to come. I, I really think a lot of these companies went public because they could, because capital was cheap, because there was tons of money in venture capital and tons of money that was looking for return that was willing to invest in these companies and to bring them public quickly because yields were so low. The reality today, Jeff, and we've talked about this to certain, to some extent before, but the reality today is if I've got a tech startup, if I have a high growth business and I went public sometime over the past three years, four years, and raised a bunch of money, and I've just kind of burned through it with this idea that at some point I'm going to get to scale. Um, and if I didn't, okay, I'd just go do a secondary and raise some more money. My stock's down 80% now, right? A secondary offering, nobody's going to, you know, that's going to be terrible. That's not going to go well because I'm still burning cash. And I'm sure as hell not going to get favorable terms on terms on debt. We've already seen a number of companies kind of in that situation that that were that have been acquired and taken and taken private or bought by private equity and bundled together with like their other companies that are kind of like to try to build like a standalone business and my concern is that i have a lot of these companies in my portfolio so here's my plan here's my plan i'm going to go through my portfolio and every company that i own that has not generated positive operating cash flow in the past year is going on a list. And then I'm going to start going through those stocks one at a time 
and really tear them apart. And if there's not a clear case to me that this business deserves to be in my portfolio because it can stand on its own at some point, live within its own cash flows and balance sheet, then I'm going to sell. I'm going to move on. That's, that's where I am. That's where I'm. And this could be, this could be 20% of my portfolio. All right. You've convinced me. Go for it. Holy crap. It's not supposed to work that way, Jeff. No, no. I, well, it's funny. I, I was, I had a bunch of different sort of responses as you were kind of going through that. So like one of the things that I've thought about when I, you know, we've talked on a previous episode, you and I both pulled a bunch of weeds back in November when we had two consecutive, like crazy great days in the market. It seemed like mm-hmm. a good day to pull some weeds. Mm-hmm. And, but I remember my thought process at the time as I sold some of the companies that fit the exact description you're giving, not, you know, cash burning, um, not really a clear path to profitability. But I did kind of say to myself, you know, they're down so much. It's such a small, now it was different for me because it was a small amount of my portfolio, but it's also a small amount of like money just overall, if you just add up in aggregate, right? So part of me was like, what's the harm in just letting them sit here for a decade, right? Like the the distance from where they were to absolute zero was not going to change my life. And, and right. then, the, but there's also the chance that maybe one gets acquired and I still sell it. still gets taken acquired at a loss for me, but I gain 20% from where I am and it save a couple bucks or, you know, maybe it kind of gets its act together over the next couple of years and takes off and I still kind of own it. But I think like, as you were saying what you were, as you were describing it, it, it's a different conversation when there's an opportunity cost to further losses, right? That that's cash that you could be deploying into something you do have a higher conviction in. And if that dollar amount of those stocks going further down makes a material difference, then I can see the argument for, you know, cutting your losses, so to speak. Um, you know, but there is that voice in my head that's like, you know, it's not a loss till you sell. <laughs> right. So right. there's like a little bit of that. But I, I really like the way you thought through it in terms of like a process of figuring it out. Like identify them, put them on a list, and interrogate them. Because you might find a handful in there that, are worth sort of on a, on a, on a flyer, right? Like I'll leave it and see what happens. Um, but there could I, you be know, I can give you, I can give you an example of, of that. So, um, our, our good friend, Jamie Luco, he goes to college not too far from me and I met him for breakfast this morning and we were talking about Twilio, which you and I just talked about earlier that like, I'm relatively convinced this is one that I'm probably going to sell. And then we talked about confluence, like, and if you were to take these two companies and like just remove the names to protect the guilty, so to speak, and like you look at their operating statements, like their cash burn rates, all of that stuff, you're like, okay, well, you have, and again, I'm not talking about the product because Twilio makes an incredible product. They really do. They make a good product. And they're trying to do things to make it better. I'm talking about the business as a thing that generates cash flow. You have a crappy business, and then you have a crappy business, <laughs> right? I'm not selling confluence at all. I'm like, there's no way I'm selling confluence. So it's again, take going, going from the numbers and then, okay, what's the story? And do I believe in the story? But see, so Tulio is a good example for what I was just thinking about. Cause I own it too. I'm not, I haven't added to it in a long time. It's near the bottom of my list of stocks. If I were to rank them or, or give a conviction on them, but you know, 
what I understand of its product and what I understand about the market opportunity in where they, you know, where they operate makes me say it's worth just leaving alone to see what happens. Like I, I mentioned earlier, like I could see it getting acquired. I mentioned, you know, but it seems like the kind of business where, you know, maybe businesses like that can shift towards profitability when they're forced to. I'm not saying it will. This isn't a prediction, but right. when it is a strong product and it's an industry with tailwinds, like people are going to be communicating on websites and apps a lot more in the future, right? So like that's, and they're a big player in that space. So that's one where I would really want to dig in a little deeper. And I haven't yet. This is just me going off my memory from the last time I sort of took a close look um, a while ago at this point. But that's what I'm talking about in terms of, I get, I question the sell strategy when there is a strong product, when there's tailwinds in the industry. And sometimes companies do just need need time to to figure it out. Like, I don't know. So I don't I'm not trying to talk you out of that cell necessarily, but that's something that I, I do think about when it's companies who are in that position specifically. Yeah. Well, we'll do some tell me I'm wrong over individual companies as I work through this list. All right. Sounds good. All right, Jeff. I think we did, we did it. We did it. We did. We once again talked to each other with microphones in front of us. That's right. Some people call it a podcast. Friends, Jeff and I love to answer these hard questions, these important questions, these importantly hard questions about investing. But you got to answer those questions for yourselves. I believe in you. Okay, Jeff, we'll see you next time. See you next time.